UNC System President Peter Hans named Lee Roberts as UNC's interim chancellor on Friday, taking over for Kevin Guskowitz when he steps down on January 12th for his new job as president at Michigan State. Roberts is currently on the UNC System Board of Governors. His background is not in higher education, but finance. Most notably, he served as state budget director under Governor Pat McCrory from 2014 to 2016. In a statement, Hans said, quote, Lee knows how to find common ground on challenging issues, and he brings out the best in everyone around him. He's deeply committed to the university, and I'm excited to work alongside him in supporting the great work happening at Carolina. Roberts issued his own statement following the announcement, saying, quote, public higher education is one of North Carolina's greatest strengths, and I'm honored to play a role in serving the nation's first and finest public university. Chancellor Guskowitz and his team have done extraordinary work, and I'm excited to continue supporting the dedicated scholars, staff, and students at Carolina. Get a lot more on this story on our website, chapelborough.com, including comments from other UNC officials. Well, the filing period is wrapped up for the 2024 election with a couple of contested races in store for the primary on March 5th. The most crowded race locally will be for Orange County School Board with incumbents Carrie Doyle, Bonnie Hauser, and Jennifer Moore all running for re-election against challengers Kevin Alston Jr., Michael Johnson, Wendy Padilla, and Cindy Schreiner. The March 5th election is actually the general election in the school board race with the top three vote-getters winning four-year terms on the board. The race for Orange County Board of Commissioners will be relatively quiet, with incumbents Gene Hamilton and Amy Fowler and first-time candidate Marilyn Carter all running unopposed. The only contested race will be in District 2, Northern Orange County. Current board member Phyllis Porty-Ascott will be running for her first full term, but she will face two challengers in the Democratic primary, Adam Beeman and Horace Johnson Jr. Whoever wins that primary will face Republican Nathan Robinson in the general election in November. Other local races, incumbent district court judges Samantha Cabe, Hathaway Pendergrass, Sherry Merle, and Joel Brown are all running unopposed for re-election, as is State House Representative Renee Price. Fellow State House Rep Alan Boynsey has no challenger in the Democratic primary, but he will face a Republican challenger in the general election, Jeffrey Hoagland, who just finished 10th out of 10 candidates in this year's Chapel Hill Town Council race. Democrat State Senator Greg Meyer also has no primary challenger. His Republican opponent in November will be Laura Pichardo. And there will be one Republican primary for U.S. House District 4, with Eric Blankenberg and Max Gnorker vying to take on Democratic incumbent Valerie Fushi in November. Get the full list of local candidates on our website, chapelboro.com, and visit Chapelboro for a rundown of all the candidates running for statewide office as well, including a dozen candidates to succeed Roy Cooper as governor and 15 candidates to replace Mark Robinson as lieutenant governor, including a Democrat who's also named Mark Robinson. Going to get more more on the state of things coming up later on today at 830. I'll be joined on the phone by Tom Jensen of Public Policy Polling. He just did a survey of Democratic voters in North Carolina about where things stand in those statewide races. We'll give you a sense of that coming up at 830. Turning to local government now, the Orange County School Board meets virtually at noon today to choose the district's next superintendent. Jim Merrill has been filling that role since August when Dr. Monique Felder left the position. Chatham County Commissioners also meet today with a work session at 2 p.m. and a regular meeting at 6. They'll vote tonight on a proposal for capital improvements over the next seven years. And tonight, Jess Anderson will officially be sworn in as Chapel Hill's next mayor when the town council meet at se- meets at 7, replacing Pam Hemminger, stepping down after eight eventful years that included the COVID-19 pandemic, the toppling of Silent Sam, and much more. Speaking with us last week, Hemminger reflected on how she hopes she'll be remembered. 
I hope I'll be remembered for buying the Legion property. I made that happen because it took a council vote, but I was determined. And many mayors before me reached out and said, you got to do this. And I'm just very proud and I'm hopeful. I think the parking deck will be something. The Innovation Center, pulling all that together with partnerships, part of that, but making that a priority, I think people will look back. And I hope they look back at the civil rights historic work we did That was, to me, truly uplifting for the community and finally acknowledging the past. I'm hopeful those they'll remember Wegmans. I think I get tagged to Wegmans a lot, (laughs) 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 which is fine with me. I'd love to shop there, and it's knocking sales tax revenues out of the park. Um, I don't know that people really understand some of the dynamics of our economic development pathway that we weren't on, that we are now on and making huge strides. And maybe the climate action plan, I know I spent years trying to get our street lights changed out, just getting us moving along on a real plan, and we have one. So I'm hopeful. And the affordable housing plan. I mean, we talked about forever about affordable housing and how we valued it, but we didn't have a plan. And so I'm all about doing the research creating a plan and then measuring yourself, holding yourself accountable for those plans. That's Pam Hemminger there. You can get the full agendas for all of today's meetings on our website, chapelboro.com, including a link to the live stream for the Orange County School Board meeting where they'll appoint that new superintendent. Finally, we turn to Dubai, where the U.N.'s 28th Annual Climate Conference, COP28, wrapped up last week. 97.9 The Hills' Andrew Stuckey checked in with a local expert who was on hand there to get her takeaways from the experience. Nearly 100,000 participants and 4,000 journalists attended COP28 earlier in December, making it the largest climate conference ever. One of those attendees was Ashley Ward from Duke's Nicholas Institute. She told 97.9 The Hill that she saw three major takeaways from the conference. The first ever focus on human health, the establishment of a loss and damage fund, and the specific calling out of fossil fuels. As a climate scientist that works in the world of public health, the health focus of the conference was particularly important to Ward. There were 110 countries sent representatives from their ministries of health, and over 140 countries signed on to the the pledges for um, uh, transitioning our health care systems, but also centering climate change and, and global health policy. So that's a really big deal, and, and the conversation around Health Day wasn't constrained to Health Day. We found that it filtered into um, every other conversation at COP. Framing conversations around health changed some of the long-term outlooks of the conference. One of the things that I felt happened at this COP, and I think the health conversation played a critical role, is look, even if we're able to mitigate, right, we are still going to experience these climate extremes and therefore, we are still going to need to, to invest in adaptation and resilience. And so it wasn't only just about health, but the health conversation and the realization that even at the best case scenario for mitigation, we're still going to have impacts to people really drove the adaptation and resilience conversation in a way that I was surprised, but also some of my colleagues who've been working in this for decades and who've attended every COP, you know, they also were very happy to see this this elevation of this issue of adaptation and, and resilience. Another major development at the conference was the establishment of a loss and damage fund. This is a pool of money established by wealthier nations who bear more of the responsibility of climate change to help lower income nations who are already shouldering the greatest burden of climate change. The loss and damage fund, you know, became a thing, right? We established that now there's $700 million in the loss and damage fund. Not enough, but it's growing. 
um, with some countries putting in substantive contributions. I mean, the UAE, $100 million, Germany, $100 million. I was a little bit embarrassed. The U.S. only put in $17 million, which, as we know, is pennies. You know, the hope is that it will grow and there will be more investment in the loss and damage fund. It's a start. And it's further along than we've ever been in the past. So that's one thing. Um, So the loss and damage fund, a big deal. One of the more subtle developments at COP28 was the language adopted in some of the official documents. Particularly interesting was the first time the conference has used language that calls out fossil fuels. Here's Ashley Ward again. This is the first time ever at a COP that we have explicitly called out in the final language around the global stock take Um, the role that fossil fuels have played and the need to wean off of fossil fuels. Now, the language was much weaker than many people would have wanted. And I actually uh, pulled up the language so that I could read it to you. Transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, orderly, and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. So there's a couple of elements of that sentence that are very important. The first is calling out fossil fuels explicitly, first time ever, and that really does help us going forward. The second is the term critical decade, which does set a timeline on which they're talking about. Another element that loomed over the conference was the controversial choice of Dubai as the location. There are people who boycotted COP this year because of its location. In addition to the extravagance of the conference itself, many people felt holding the conference in a country that's built its economy around fossil fuels is unacceptable. Here's Ashley Ward on how that influenced the conference experience for her. Um, So first of all, air quality there is not that great. I mean, you can imagine they have a lot of oil refineries. And so part of being in Dubai with it being as hot as it was and with the air quality being what it was, again, that became the topic of conversation for people. Like, we really got to do something about the climate change stuff. It never really was far away, sort of the, the irony of hosting Uh, you know, a climate change conference and a petrostate. In spite of all the questions surrounding the conference, Ward still felt there was cause for some guarded optimism. One of the most powerful things about COP is, you know, not what takes place in the negotiating rooms. It's what takes place with the people that you meet. And I have a stack of business cards and lists of people to connect with, and it's very exciting to go forward. For 97.9 The Hill. I'm Andrew Stuckey. You can get more from Ashley Ward in the News on the Hill section of our website, chapelboro.com, and visit Chapelboro for even more local news, including recent gov- comments from Governor Roy Cooper looking back on a contentious 2023 in state government. Time now for sports, brought to you this hour by CIMG Residential Mortgage. Carolina men's basketball took its second loss in a row on Saturday, 87-83 to 14th-ranked Kentucky in the CBS Sports Classic in Atlanta. Ninth-ranked Heels had a chance to win, but came up short with a couple costly errors late. R.J. Davis led the way yet again with 27 points. Cormac Ryan added 20, but Kentucky made enough free throws down the stretch and won the rebounding battle 42-32, to and that was enough to make the difference. Here's head coach Hubert Davis talking rebounding after. After the game. To me, rebounding, you know, those energy and effort plays, it's, it's not about technique, it's just will and want to. Um, there's an attitude about it, and we have to make a, a commitment to be able to create contact first and be um, strong enough and to be able to do a better job rebounding. It's, it's good that RJ got seven rebounds, but it's not good that he led the team in rebounding and and he ended up with seven. He had six in the first half and he still led the team in rebounding. So 
you know, as I said before, when we talk, that, that is a huge emphasis for us, that we've got to find a way to become a better rebounding team. That's just number one on our list. And Hubert Davis there. It was a better weekend for UNC women's basketball. 25th-ranked Tar Heels cruised over Western Carolina 96-36 on Friday. Alyssa Usby led the way with 23 points and 9 rebounds in just 24 minutes on the court. But the best news was the return of two Tar Heels who had been out with injuries. Paulina Paris came back after missing the last two games. She had a season-high 16 points. And Tiani Key finally got on the court for the first time this season. She finished with 7 points and a game-high 10 rebounds. Both the men and women now head to Charlotte to face Oklahoma in the Jumpman Invitational. Tar Heel women will play at 9.30 tomorrow night, while the men are in action at 9 p.m. on Wednesday. Over to field hockey now, where Tar Heel star Riley Heck has been named D1 National Player of the Year by the Field Hockey Coaches Association. Heck had 13 goals and 8 assists this season, including the game-winning penalty shot against Northwestern that gave UNC the national championship. She's only the third Tar Heel ever to win that honor, joining Caitlin Falgowski and three-time winner Aaron Matson. Heck was also named a first-team All-American. Freshman Charlie Bruder made the second team. Sophomore Sietzky Bruning made the third team. Elsewhere in sports, the Tar Heel wrestling team beat Morgan State on Saturday but lost to App State on Sunday. And the Carolina football team landed another transfer for next year. Offensive lineman Austin Blasky, who's been at Georgia for the last four years. He saw limited action this past season, though, due to injuries. Finally, in hockey, the Carolina Hurricanes suffered a pair of overtime losses over the weekend, 6-5 to to Nashville on Friday and 2-1 to to Washington last night. Still picked up a point in each of those games. The Canes are back in action tomorrow evening, hosting the Golden Knights.